I just want you to see Jesus. I want you to see Jesus in the book of Numbers. I want you to see Jesus in my life. I want you to see Jesus in this text. As we've gone through the book of Numbers, we've just tried to point to Jesus. At every turn, I've preached it. Pastor Alex has preached it. Pastor Nick in student ministry is Pastor Josh, Pastor Jordan. As we taught this book, we just want to show Jesus all over the book of Numbers. And when we get to Deuteronomy, spoiler, we're going to point to Jesus. Because we're not a, we're not a Jewish synagogue, we're a Christian church. We believe that the Messiah, Messiah, has come. And so as you study the Old Testament books, we see the foreshadowings of Jesus. I pray, I pray that you likewise would point people to Jesus with your life. You take whatever text you're in, you point to Jesus. I promise it will make perfect sense because everything that is promised in the Old Testament finds its yes in Jesus Every promise God makes in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Jesus is present for all of this. He's leading his people to the promised land physically and quite literally in the story of Israel as outlined in the book of Numbers. He's doing the same thing today right here in this room, leading the people of God to the promised land. Do you see it? Do you see the parallels here? We're looking at more than just the outlining of the borders of a literal physical plot of dirt and sand and rock on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. We're seeing the story of how God brought the Messiah about. We're seeing how God chose his nation from the slaves of Egypt and brought about Jesus so that you sitting in this room today would hear and believe and be saved, my skeptical friend. From the book of Numbers, you can see Jesus at every turn. When God deals with his own people's rebellion severely, we see foreshadowings of Jesus. When God allocates portions of the promised land to his people, we see the foreshadowings, we see the genealogy that would lead to Jesus. When Joshua is appointed to succeed Moses, we see Yeshua, literally Yeshua, foreshadowing Jesus. As we look at the book of Numbers, we see Jesus. And my prayer today is that as we conclude the book of Numbers to prepare to begin studying Deuteronomy next week on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, that you would see Jesus. In Numbers chapter 25, a rebellion breaks out and the people of God begin to worship Baal. God deals severely with his people. It is harsh but fair judgment. And we saw we saw warning of this in Numbers 1. If they had adhered to the commands given in Numbers 1 and Numbers 3, the events of Numbers 25 would not have happened. In Numbers 1, we saw in verse 51, when the tabernacle is to set out, the Levite shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levite shall set it up. If any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. And our jaws drop because that's so harsh. Israel has utterly forgotten this command when we get to Numbers 25. Numbers 3.10, and you shall appoint Aaron and his sons and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. There it is again. Here comes a third time, affirmed further in Numbers 3.38. Those who were to camp before the tabernacle on the east, before the tent of meeting toward the sunrise, were Moses and Aaron and his sons guarding the sanctuary itself to protect the people of Israel. And if any outsider who came near it was to be put to death. 
It's a harsh command, but it's one that's utterly forgotten. Our boy Balaam, do you remember him? Like the weird spiritual contractor prophet for hire whom Balak hires to try to curse Israel and all he can do is bless Israel. Well, we see later on in the book of Numbers that he advises the Midianites, if you send prostitutes in among the men of Israel, they'll lose their way. And it happens. And then all these warnings you see in the book of Joshua begin to make sense. The book of Joshua comes after these events, after the book of Deuteronomy. And there's all these harsh warnings, like this guy named Achan takes some ceremonial robes and just a few trinkets from one of the cities they overtake. They were told to take nothing with them. Here's the background of that. Here's why. Because when they began to just tolerate a little bit of idolatry, it gave way to an all-out rebellion and 24,000 Israelites are going to be killed in a plague from God to discipline them because they outright worship Baal. They worship a false god. They were, they were taken from chattel slavery in Egypt, miraculously delivered, miraculously fed by God, and now they're worshiping another god for crying out loud. And so God deals severely with his people. And you know where that, where that severe judgment, where that severe discipline begins? It begins right here. It begins with the priesthood. The first five verses of Numbers 25 says, hang the priests in the sun. I'm glad I was born when I was born. <laughs> because when the people of God forsake God, the first people to suffer is the spiritual leadership. Now that, <laughs> thank you God for your mercy, that's an Old Testament practice. We still do have measures to make examples of spiritual leaders when a pastor sins flagrantly and is not accountable to it, does not repent of it, does not confess it. He is to be made an example of according to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Now, thank you, God, that's no longer an example by physically hanging him in the sun so everybody can see. Rather, he's publicly to confess that, publicly to be brought forward. So this New Testament practice of holding pastors accountable has an Old Testament precedent of beginning God's discipline with the priests. The first five verses of number 25 say literally, hang them in the sun. Why? So that everybody can see. God takes sin seriously. We looked at Numbers 1 and Numbers 3, this command to put to death anybody who approached approach the tabernacle in an unworthy manner was to be put to death. Our jaws dropped. And then you're going to see somebody in Numbers 25, remember what God said and do it. This is Numbers 25 beginning in verse 6. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. Remember, they're under, they're under discipline from God right now, so some people are weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. The name of the slain man of Israel who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, chief of a father's house belonging to the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zur, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, harass the Midianites and strike them down for they have harassed you with their wiles with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. Phineas, grandson of Aaron, took the command of Numbers 1 and enacted it. He just obeyed. For context, these Midianite women, at the prompting of Balaam, have come in and have seduced the, the, the men of Israel. And this man of Israel, while people are weeping for what God has visited upon them, brings his Midianite seductress to introduce her to his parents at the tent of meeting, right in front of Moses, right in front of Phineas, right in front of all the people who are currently trying to get God's wrath to abate for exactly this thing. It is flagrant, brazen disobedience. It is for exactly that sin that these people are weeping in corporate repentance. And this man comes in front of everybody without conviction, without regard for what the word of God has said. And so for that reason, Phineas has had enough and he obeys Numbers 151. He obeys Numbers 310. He obeys Numbers 338. When you see God's wrath pour out, also always see the mercy. When you think about wrath, the idea of a pagan mythological god, which are, which are prominent in pop culture right now, like a pagan mythological god who has wrath will never be satisfied. That wrath is never sated because it is rooted in a belligerent nature. Our God, the one true God, the Lord God, his wrath is just. His wrath is akin to the anger that wells up in the belly of a father who sees his little girl being abused on a playground. That father ought to have wrath. And if that father can watch his daughter be harmed on a playground and have nothing to say about it, then he's not a good father. The wrath of God is just and righteous and leads to peace and justice. So God does pour out his wrath, but look also always for the grace that is present. So God pours out his wrath and he does so through Phineas, a zealous priest who I believe points us to Jesus. Jesse. Like the dude just skewered two people in a two for one. And you're saying that reminds you of Jesus. Yes. <laughs> Watch. This zeal for the house of God, this jealousy for the house of God, this is an attribute that was prophesied of the Messiah. In Psalm 69, verses 8 and 9, David is writing and he's lamenting. He's in a place of pain. If you're in a place of great pain, Psalm 69 may resonate well with your heart. Psalms were often written by David while he was fleeing somebody who should have been good to him but wasn't. Remember like Saul, his predecessor, or his own son, Absalom. He would flee to a place like En Gedi 
and he would there, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, write some of the most exquisite psalms. But he wasn't just lamenting his current setting. He was also, perhaps unwittingly, prophesying the Messiah to come. So here's Psalm 69, verses eight and nine. I have become a stranger to my brothers and a foreigner to my mother's sons because zeal for your house has consumed me and the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. So here's the prophecy about the Messiah and watch it fulfilled by Jesus in John chapter two, verse 13 through 17 in the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. It reads, the Jewish Passover was near and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep and doves and he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. Picture it. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the, the prophecy for the Messiah is in Psalm 69, 8 and 9. The fulfillment of that prophecy is in Jesus in John chapter 2. And both of these attributes are typified by Phineas in Numbers 25. Yeah, but Jesse, that's still a far cry. Like Jesus making a whip out of cords and driving people out of the temple. By the way, if that image shocks you, welcome to Highlands Community Church. This is the biblical Jesus. Comes in, overturns tables. Oh, oh. If you're aghast and offended by that, it's time that you read your Bible. This is what Jesus did. This is how Jesus confronted hypocrisy and corruption and false doctrine in his church. But Jesse, that overturning the tables, it's kind of funny to picture it, but it's, that's still a far cry from what Phineas did, okay, in his human shish kebab maneuver. Revelation 19 gives us another picture of Jesus that's important here. Numbers 25 shows Phineas taking the word of God seriously all right, it shows Phineas being the only one who had the fortitude to do what God had commanded repeatedly at the beginning of the book of Numbers, something which the whole point of it was so that it would never have to be enacted. The whole point of that strict command was so that nobody would be put to death, so that nobody would defile the tent of meeting, nobody would corrupt the entryway to the tabernacle this way. And when Phineas obeys God's word and puts to death these people who have corrupted the tent of meeting, he reminds me both of the prophecy for the Messiah in Psalm 69, what Jesus did in John chapter two, and moreover, what Jesus is going to do. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, describes Jesus this way. Behold, I saw heaven open up, and there before me was a rider on a white horse whose name was Faithful and True. His eyes were like fire, and on his head were many crowns. He wore a robe dipped in blood. Riding behind him were the armies of heaven dressed in white linen, fine and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sword with which to strike down the nations. He, preds, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. He ruled them with an iron scepter. On his robe and on his thigh has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Do you see now why Phineas in Numbers 25 reminds me of Jesus? Jesus in Revelation 19. While he rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey to be slain, the Gospels, in the book of Revelation, he rides in on a war horse to slay. God still has wrath for evil. We will struggle with this only if we take on a 
take on a more modern neo-orthodoxy view of Jesus. If your view is that of Marcionism, that is to say God had wrath in the Old Testament but has no more in the New Testament, you're gonna really struggle with the book of Revelation. It's like God had wrath in the Old Testament, changed his mind, never mind in the, in, in the most of the New Testament, and then you get to the book of Revelation and suddenly God has wrath again? God changed his mind again? No, God has always had wrath for sin. The whole point is that Jesus takes upon himself that full wrath. That's what the cross signifies. That's the significance of the atonement of Jesus. That's the power of his resurrection. That's the point. That's why we're here today. God still feels the exact same way about sin that he did the day Phineas skewered two people for defiling the tabernacle. And you and I are all guilty of sins similar to this, equivalent to that. But the atoning work of Jesus upon the cross absolves us of the wrath of God for our sin. That's the significance of the atonement of Jesus on the cross. When you see Phineas, I want you to see Jesus. Now, in the next chapter, there's going to be the second census in the book of Numbers. This is where you see evidence that the sons of Korah did not die. Didn't Pastor Nick do an amazing job last week with the story of the Korah rebellion? So the sons of Korah did not die. They would go on to write other Psalms, in fact. Balaam, apparently, when he said he would go return to his people, goes to join the Midianites. And in Numbers 31.8, he is killed along with the Midianite, the Midianite kings. You're gonna see Israel get ready to take the promised land in the closing chapters. The, the time seems to slow down compared to previous chapters that have covered entire years at a time. The whole book of Numbers transpires over the course of 39 years. And the book of, the, uh, the book of Deuteronomy is gonna take place over a much shorter period of time because the book of Deuteronomy will feel like a, a recapitulation. All right, my purpose in this sermon is not to fully wring out everything I can from the text. That's not possible in the time allotted. Rather, my hope is to equip you as you read the Bible yourself. Do you understand? All right, can you do that for me? Can you read the Bible yourself by the Holy Spirit of God and see Jesus in this text? That is my aim here. I wanna share the gospel with you. I want you to see Jesus in this text. I wanna equip you to see Jesus when you read the book of Numbers and you start to read the book of Deuteronomy. It's gonna feel, like, feel like a recapitulation, but it is not. Moses, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is both recapping that which took place in the book of Numbers and the events of Exodus. He's providing additional insights behind the curtain of the tent of meeting, if you will, insights into how God spoke to him behind the scenes of the events described in Exodus and in Numbers. So that second census tells us the story of Korah. Balaam shows up in Numbers 31. You're also gonna see evidence that, that Balaam had the idea to infiltrate Israel and have, have, uh, have seductresses from Midian go and seduce them in of Israel. If, if he couldn't wage spiritual warfare on them, he could cause men to be tempted. And those Israelite men took the bait. Look at what happens. Look at what happens, men, when you give in a temptation. Look at, look at how many people it affects. Then you're gonna see these trumpet blasts that we learned about earlier in the book of Numbers come back because as they're getting ready to roll out, those trumpet blasts are gonna be used in the 29th chapter. Two trumpets sounding simultaneously, both meant 
all the whole camp's gonna roll out. One trumpet meant just the leadership comes forward. Short blast meant the tribes to this side of the camp roll out. A second set of short blast meant the other set of tribes roll out. This is gonna be a day of trumpet blasts, meaning we are getting ready to finally go and take the land that God has promised, but Moses will not be permitted. Moses will not be present out of judgment for the sins that he had committed. I want you to look now at Numbers chapter 26. Can I show you Jesus in Numbers 26? Is that okay? Look at Numbers 26, verse 19 with me. Numbers 26, verse 19. The sons of Judah were Er and Onan. And Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Judah, according to their clans, were of Shalah, the clan of the Shelanites, of Perez, the clan of the Perizzites, of Zerah, the clan of the Zerahites. And the sons of Perez were of Hezron, the clan of the Hezronites of Hamul, the clan of the Hamulites. These are the clans of Judah as they were listed, 76,500. This was the largest tribe of Israel. If you fast forward in their timeline, they take the promised land, they live as a theocracy, they become a monarchy. In the monarchy days, there actually, becomes, there actually comes about a schism. Judah is gonna become its own nation in the future. It was the largest of the tribes. It's also the tribe that would lead to Jesus. In Matthew chapter one, you're gonna see some familiar names. Some of the same people named in Numbers 26 are named in the New Testament in the genealogy that leads to Jesus. Here's Matthew chapter one. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez. Does that name sound familiar? And Zerah, does that name sound familiar? By Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Does that name sound familiar? Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. We remember these names from the very first offerings made in the tabernacle. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse, not me. It's another Jesse. And Jesse fathered King David. In verse 15 and 16, Eliud fathered Eleazar. Where do you think they got that name from? Eleazar fathered Mathan. Mathan fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. Do you see the background to Jesus in the book of Numbers? In Numbers chapter 26, as the land is allocated, as instructions are given, you see the background to the Messiah. God, through his promised people, taking them to the promised land, is making it possible to bring about the promised Messiah. See Jesus in the book of Numbers. Now, look at chapter 27 with me. Chapter 7, 27, beginning in verse 12. Chapter 7, beginning in verse, in verse 12. Moses had messed up the waters of Meribah. He was instructed by God to provide water for the thirsty people, but he didn't obey those instructions. He instead words the miracle in such a way that he and Aaron get credit, asking, must we, meaning Aaron and I, bring water from this rock? So God confronts him for it. And because of that, he's not going to enter the promised land. I admire Moses nonetheless for still serving faithfully all the way up until his death in the end of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 34. But it's for that that Moses needs to appoint another successor. So here is the story of how Joshua was imbued with the authority of Moses. The Lord said to Moses, go up into this mountain of Abarim and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people, meaning he's going to die, as your brother Aaron was, who died on Mount Hor. 
Because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin, when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah of Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit and lay your hand on him. Do you see this Old Testament precedent for the New Testament practice of the laying on of hands to commission somebody unto ministry? Here are its roots. Verse 19, make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the, priest, uh, as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation. He laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. This one is easy because the name of Joshua is Yeshua and transliterated, that is literally the same name as Jesus. So can I ask again, do you see Jesus in the book of Numbers? Or more directly, do you see Yeshua in the book of Numbers? Do you see how Yeshua points forward to Yeshua? Joshua's life both was a redux of Moses' ministry and a foreshadowing of Jesus. Okay, his name is Yeshua. Follow me on this. His name is Yeshua. He's leading the people of God to the promised land. We can say the exact same thing. His name is Yeshua and he's leading God's people to the promised land. It's true. Do you see how Yeshua foreshadows Yeshua? Do you see Jesus in the book of Numbers? I just want you to see Jesus in the book of Numbers. And just as Moses led the Israelites across the miraculously parted Red Sea, Joshua would lead the people of Israel in Joshua chapters three and four, being strong and courageous, being strong and courageous, being strong and very courageous as God and the people repeatedly reminded Yeshua to lead them across the parted waters, this time not of the Red Sea, but of the raging Jordan River, which flowed vertically so that all the people of Israel would cross on dry ground. Look for these parallels as you read the book of Joshua between the ministry of Moses and Joshua's ministry as he leads the people of Israel. Why? It's a brand new generation. All of Israel is baptized through the Red Sea. This is what Paul calls the baptism of Moses. It's a foreshadowing of New Testament baptism. And then it's Joshua's turn to take over and lead a new generation of Israelites into a new era. But God is reaffirming his promises. Moses, where is your Joshua? When we studied 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, we drew from the very context of these books themselves, along with the book of Ephesians, to show the necessity for discipleship, that you have somebody that you're pouring into. If you're a man, you're a younger man you're pouring into. If you're a woman of God, you're a younger woman of God you're pouring into and showing them just as Moses showed Joshua how to lead. And as long as Moses' hands with the staff of God were raised towards heaven, Joshua on the battlefield below experienced victory. Older generation, as long as your hands are raised toward heaven on behalf of the younger generation, on behalf of every soul represented in our next-gen ministries, they will experience victory on the field of battle. So Moses, where's your Joshua? Joshua, find a Moses. If they say no, you send them to me. Now, 
In Numbers chapter 34, beginning in verse 16, you're going to learn something kind of cool about Caleb. Unless you paid really close attention in the Bible reading plan in chapter 13, there's something really cool about Caleb. If you don't know who Caleb is, he was Joshua's brother in Christ. Joshua's fellow spy who was sent to scout out the land. There were 12 spies, right? And the original Israeli Special Forces CIA unit, right? They went to, on a reconnaissance mission to scope out the land. When they came back, 10 of the 12 spies gave a bad report, even lying, saying there were Nephilim there. The Nephilim were wiped out in the flood. They, they did admit that the land was exceedingly good. They brought this giant cluster of grapes to prove it, but the whole company of Israel fell into despair. And they said, we need to go back to Egypt, back to slavery. And even Moses and Aaron fell face down before the back to Egypt committee. But Joshua and Caleb believed the Lord. And for that reason, Joshua and Caleb would inherit the promised land. We've seen Joshua inherit the authority of Moses. Now, here's Caleb given a, an important job. And in this, you're gonna learn what tribe Caleb belonged to. Here is, here is Numbers, verse, beginning in verse 16, chapter 34. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, these are the names of the men who shall divide the land to you, uh, to you for inheritance. Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun. You shall take one chief from every tribe to divide the land for inheritance. Again, look at the brilliant organizational leadership structure in this book. It is, it is amazing, just delegation structure that you'd have God speaking through Moses, who's working through Eleazar and Joshua to go to the chiefs, to go to each tribe. I mean, it is, it is brilliant structure because you're, you're dealing with millions of people. Verse 19, these are the names of the men. Of the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Caleb was from the same tribe as Jesus. I love Caleb. Every time I see Caleb speak in scripture, he just quotes God. That's a cool legacy to have, isn't it? Every time Caleb speaks, he just quotes God, and he means it. I mean, he comes across perhaps a little bit gruff because he means what he says. Now, here, here in, I'm going to fast forward in history. Fast forward after the events of Numbers and, and the, the, the few events of Deuteronomy, all the events of Joshua. When you get to chapter 11 of Joshua, it's very violent. God is simultaneously pouring out his wrath upon the Canaanites who for centuries had practiced abominable things like child sacrifice and numerous debaucherous practices. And he's also giving his people their physical promised land. Now, after Joshua chapter 11 comes, then it's time to apportion out the land to everybody as, as was promised. And Caleb is present. Joshua and Caleb were two of the only people who actually got to inherit the promised land from the, from the pre previous generation of Israelites. And Caleb is about to speak up and remind his buddy Joshua of everything that God promised. In Joshua 14, beginning in verse six of the Christian Standard Bible, the descendants of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, you know what the Lord promised Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea about you and me. See what I mean? No small talk, no Seahawks football, just you remember what God promised us through Moses. I was 40 years old when Moses, the Lord's servant, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to scout out the land. And I brought back an honest report. My brothers who went with me caused the people to lose heart, but I followed the Lord my God completely. 
On that day, Moses swore to me, the land where you have set foot will be an inheritance for you and your descendants forever because you have followed the Lord my God completely. As you see, the Lord has kept me alive these 45 years. As he promised, since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel was journeying in the wilderness, here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was the day Moses sent me out. My strength for battle and for daily tasks is now as it was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me on that day because you heard then that the Anakim are there as well as large fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I will drive them out as the Lord promised. Then Joshua blessed Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron still belongs to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, as an inheritance today because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, completely. There it is again. Hebron's name used to be Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. After this, the land had rest from war. Those last words are particularly poignant when you read the whole book of Joshua because you see all of the war, but now the land has rest from war. Look at how patient Caleb has been. I, I discovered like a room in the church I've never been to this past week. And I found a machine I've never seen before. It is a button maker. Praise Jesus. So now I'm an honorary member of the 60s plus group. I showed this to the 8 a.m. service and some of them are like 60. You might as well be in the youth group in this room. <laughs> the 60s plus group has a, has a button maker and I, I was amazed by this and I shared this passage. They were particularly stoked about this quote from Caleb. In, in Joshua 14 verse 11, some of you are gonna go, you're like, write this down. And take it to a tattoo artist and put it on your bicep. I mean, look at this. This is what I want to be like when I'm 85. I am still as strong today as I was the day Moses sent me out. My strength for battle and for daily tasks is now as it was then. Now give me this hill country the Lord promised me. Right? Imagine that. When you get 85, get that tattooed on your bicep and point to it when your kids question you. <laughs> They're like, all right, mom. <laughs> I want to be like that when I'm 85. Faithful to God's promise, quoting the Lord. Now, in chapter 36, you're going to see some stuff promised. You're going to see something that's groundbreaking. It's also difficult to understand. And we have not the time to fully delve into it here. And so we've allocated a special event, February 9th, called Tough Texts. We'll make it available through various channels. Stand by for more information. But I want to cover that text along with other very difficult texts of the whole book of Numbers and the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 36 is one of the passages to be covered. In it, you're going to see something that's, that's quite, quite groundbreaking for its day. Women have the right to own property as of Numbers 36. There's only one culture in the history of the world that gave women the right to own property before Israel in the events of Numbers 36. And in my mind, it doesn't really count because that nation was Egypt. Why, is, why does it not count, Jesse? Well, because the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites. So some of that property that the women of Egypt had was the Hebrew women for crying out loud. So I give the first country ever to allow women to own property award to Israel as of Numbers 36. We're gonna delve further into that on our night, tough text, Numbers and Deuteronomy. In chapter 35, you're gonna see 
some other, some, uh, some other teachings that are important, you're gonna see something about sanctuary cities, right? And when you read chapter 35, when you read verses six through 15, it lays out the sanctuary cities. Please don't commit a common interpretive error. Please remember verse 12, right? Chapter 35, verse 12, in the Christian Standard Bible reads, you will have the, cities as a city, uh, you'll have the cities as a refuge from the avenger so that the one who kills someone will not die until he stands trial before the assembly. This was a groundbreaking law in Numbers 35. It made Israel one of the oldest societies in history, one of the very first ever in the history of the world to have distinguishing laws to approach manslaughter and murder differently. You see some of the laws prescribed in dealing with manslaughter in chapter 35, verses 22 through 25, and murder in verses 16 through 21. The example that's given is if you're in the woods and you're chopping down a tree and the ax head flies off your ax and kills somebody, you would go to one of the cities of refuge. Now, I've heard this taught as though if you go to the city of refuge, you can literally get away with murder. That's not the case. Rather, you go and you stand, you, you will wait your chance to stand trial before the assembly. It protects the rights of the accused. It protects the rights of the guilty. It, it, here it is, I believe, the very first recorded instance of due process 3,200 years before America. These laws were groundbreaking. Again, do not compare the laws and the culture of Israel to modern day America. Compare them to their colleagues, their contemporaries in pagan Babylon. Compare them to Moab. Compare them to other nations of their day at the same time. Now you're gonna be really tempted to skip chapter 34's opening verses because like, it's this long series of landmarks, okay? I have, and, and man, you guys are so gracious to me. Like when I try to play armchair economist, armchair paleontologist, armchair historian, like, forgive me for this. I, I, I did it again. I played the part of armchair cartographer, all right? My, my geography is not very good, but I did outline these landmarks in Numbers 34 because Numbers 34 describes the border of Israel. So here is a map of Israel and its borders as prescribed by Numbers chapter 34, verse one through 15. Okay, take a look at this. You, you see these landmarks that go through, this messed me up, there are actually two Mount Hors, one to the north, one to the south. One to the south is where Aaron died. There's another one farther to the north. These are the borders of Israel as prescribed by Numbers 34, one through 15. Also, I did my best to outline where the sanctuary cities are, but I only got one of them exactly right because there's only one of them that still had the same name 3,500 years later. So these are the sanctuary, sanctuary cities. The, the southwesternmost city is the only one that I know to be exactly accurate. The other ones are approximations. The point is that these are provisions for grace even while there's justice. Isn't that exactly what God does? As you see God pour out wrath and justice in the Old Testament, you also always see the grace. Now, these are the borders of Israel as prescribed by Numbers 34, 1 through 15, but you're gonna see the borders of Israel come up again years later to a different dude in a different context for a totally different purpose. Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 13 through 23 also show the borders to Israel. God told Ezekiel, these are the borders of Israel. 
Now again, this is my best attempt to play armchair cartographer, but here are the borders of Israel as per Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 13 through 23. Now, the deviations between the two are likely attributed to the incompetence of your pastor. And so to, to split the difference, here is another border that summarizes these two. Now, the borders of Israel in modern day times have shifted. For example, in the, in the 60s, there was a renegotiation that moved part of the borders of Israel. All right, these borders are remarkably similar to the modern border of Israel today. The northern portion is different. The southeastern corner extends out farther today, but this is, this is the same overall plot of land that was promised to the nation of Israel all the way back in Numbers 34, reiterated in Ezekiel 47. And then here's what's all the more remarkable. According to Matthew 24, what Jesus prophesied was that the temple itself would be overturned and disassembled brick by brick because the fever pitch the tension between the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities would lead to the sacking of Jerusalem in the year AD 70. So Jerusalem was ransacked by Roman authority, convinced that the Jews were hiding gold on the walls, they tore the temple down brick by brick, and Israel ceased to exist as a nation for 2,000 years. After Numbers and Deuteronomy, Joshua and Judges and Ruth, and we see some of the stories of the monarchy of Israel. And then you begin to see prophecies about Israel. All the remaining books of the Old Testament prophesy the story of this nation of Israel. And they foretell of this coming fall in the year 70, centuries before it actually takes place. And all these prophecies are accompanied by this warning, this call that Israel would be scattered and then would be gathered together again on its own land. And then we would know that he alone is the Lord God. Ezekiel's vision likened the nation of Israel to a valley of dry bones, that God would breathe into these dry bones and cause them to live again. And it says over and over again that we would look upon this and know that he alone is God. It was not because of Israel that God did this. The people of Israel, as we've seen in today's texts, were not exactly the perfectly faithful followers of God. We've seen God just demonstrate his favor upon Israel so that we would look upon it and know that he is God. Today, the nation of Israel exists on roughly the same borders as were prescribed in your Bibles, in Numbers chapter 34, reiterated in Ezekiel 47. They scattered, they didn't exist. Somebody tried to systematically exterminate the entire Jewish race. Six million Jews were slaughtered in a horrific act of genocide. And then under the leadership of David Ben-Jurion on that same plot of land that once belonged to their ancestors where some Jews never left, you see God reinstate the nation of Israel on May 14th, 1948, Israel. The same Israel we're studying in Numbers becomes a nation again. Isaiah 66 asks the question, how can this be? How can a nation be brought forth in a day? That's exactly what God did in Israel. So as you study even the boundary markers of Numbers 34, I want you to see the promises of God fulfilled. I want you to see the nation that God chose and brought them to their promised land because it was on that promised land that the Messiah was born and crucified and resurrected. When you look to the borders of Israel. I want you to see proof of the faithfulness of God. That's the purpose of these prophecies over and over again in Ezekiel 36 and 37, that we would know that he alone is God. So it's not 
just a study in border placement. Do you understand? It's proof of the promises of God. I want you to read the story of Phineas. I want you to see Jesus. I want you to see the allocation of the land of Israel. I want you to see Jesus. I want you to see the ancestry from Caleb back to the nation, the tribe of Judah. I want you to see Jesus. I want you to look at Joshua appointed to succeed Moses. I want you to see Jesus. I want you to look at the boundary markers for the land of Israel. I want you to see the land where Jesus was born. I want you to see Jesus all over the book of Numbers. I want you to see Jesus today. My skeptical friend, these things cannot possibly be coincidence. We are studying a book that is millennia old, but it describes a nation that exists once more today. This is the inspired word of God. I want you to see Jesus in the book of Numbers. I want you to see Jesus in this place. That same Holy Spirit that inspired this perfect book to Moses millennia ago is the same exact Holy Spirit who's drawing upon your heart to give your life to Jesus today. Under that drawing of the Holy Spirit, would you come into the family of God? As we look at the book of Numbers, we see God bringing his people to the promised land. Today at Highlands Community Church, you can experience God bringing his people into the promised land. As the Holy Spirit of God draws upon you, would you pray with me and give your life to Jesus and become a part of the people of God and go to the promised land? Pray with me now. God, I believe that your word is true. I believe you, God. I believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that is prophesied and foreshadowed in the book of Numbers. I believe, God, that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son that if I would believe in him, I would not die but have everlasting life. I believe, Jesus, I confess, Romans 3.23, that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I confess, Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe that Jesus alone fulfills everything in numbers. I believe that Jesus alone is the way. I believe that Jesus alone is the truth. I believe that Jesus alone is the life, and there's no way I can come to be a part of the people of God. There's no way I can come to the Father except through Jesus. And so right here and now, I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it. Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. Make me a part of your people and take me to the promised land. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and worship with us? Some of us for the very first time as brand new members of the family of God.